0: And welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. Happy 99 episodes. 99 episodes, but a bitch ain't one. It ain't. <laughs> it really ain't. <laughs> I, I don't think we got a bitch in here. Not tonight. No. Um, tonight, we would like to invite you all to a very special party. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've taken our month off. It's the start of a new semester, and uh, we wanted to get everyone together because, you know what? We just haven't seen everyone in
1: a really long time. And... It's been nice. Yeah. It's and... been a nice break, but it's it's time to reconnect, as awkward though it might be, to get re under the circumstances, but we have a really nice bottle of red wine. Oh, Not like an eight million dollar bottle of red wine, but pretty close. I mean, thirty dollars, thirty Canadian on dollars on a sliding scale. That's like eight million American. No, <laughs> um,
0: but we are here today to do this episode on Karin Kasuma's "The Invitation,"
1: a film that was selected by our patrons. What a choice and what a fun poll that was. We put up a whole bunch of movies that were tottering around in our heads and like very different mm-hmm. all of and and it was neck and neck for a while, wasn't it? It was a little bit and then after a day or two
0: the invitation just pulled ahead mm-hmm. and I'll be really honest I would have happily done any of those episodes. That's why we kind of turned it into a poll. You know, bonus if you're a patron, you get to vote on
1: this shit. Uh, but I, I was pulling for the invitation. Oh, yeah. As a 2015 film that uh, came right out onto, it was Netflix, wasn't it? I think in Canada, it was definitely Netflix. That's how I first saw it. It premiered at South by Southwest.
0: It was picked up by Draft House. It got a limited theatrical release. Uh-huh. did a couple other
1: festivals. But I think everyone really found it through streaming. Right. And the buzz around it was undeniable that this movie is amazing. Just about everybody I know loved it. I've yet to read a negative review. I personally love it. I loved it the first time I saw it, and I loved it re-watching it for this up. So, good choice, everyone. Well, I mean, good choice, patrons. Yes. But good choice,
0: everyone, for loving this movie. <laughs> um Because it was interesting when I first came to this film, and, and I remember watching it on Netflix, and I didn't really know anything about it, and I got totally sucked in, and I totally fell in love with it. This is a film that when I meet people and they're like, ooh, horror films and if they haven't seen it, I show them this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great film that is in some ways really predominant in the horror community and in some ways it's still kind of quiet because it didn't seem to have a big moment where everyone came to it. It's like everyone just kept finding it individually Mm -hmm. and I kind of love that it's just grown
1: and grown and grown in time. Mm -hmm. And of course Karen Kusama is not a noob in the horror world. Uh, Her name means a lot to me. It adds a lot of weight to any film that she puts out. I will check out and 9 times out of 10 I will love. Yeah, obviously our discussion is going to be spoilery as heck, as the Faculty of Horror always is. We're going to go through the entire plot. I feel like this film, it hurdles to a conclusion that you see coming, but you don't want to see coming Mm -hmm. because you care about these characters, but what you think is probably happening does happen, and just the dread of hurtling toward the inevitable is a big part of this film for me. Was that your experience, or were you surprised by the ending? I was watching this film... And I remember thinking, gosh, I
0: hope it's not all in his head. uh Oh, uh-huh. Because I don't always love those movies. It's often a cop-out. And so the fact that this film just pays off in dividends about all of his paranoia was not only real, but it was necessary Mm -hmm. to the film, to the other characters around him. And it's a sickening thing to be right about. That's right. Even though it's not like these huge twists are coming throughout the film, it's
1: devastating. Yeah. When you get to the end. And there's still a stinger at the end. Yeah. There's still a stinger that's... still stings no matter how many times i see this movie so shall we let's do it i invite Um, you to the invitation i accept how
0: this thing is so official
2: maybe they're overcompensating it's kind of hard to call everybody up out of the blue after two years i'm so glad you're here we've got a lot to talk about so much to celebrate tonight Each and every one of us is on a journey, and we feel that it's important to be on that journey with
1: the people you love. Everybody, this is my friend, Pruitt.
2: Bars on windows and no? Security, safer. You've been acting so suspicious of our hospitality. Jesus. Has he been like this a lot? So agitated.
0: How has he been handling things? He can be self-destructive. I think he's doing the best he can.
2: Something doesn't feel safe here. We don't see you for two years and then all of a sudden we get invited to this lavish dinner <laughs> don't tell me that this is normal what do you think is happening well this beautiful moment is upon us tonight is the night our faith is made real
1: with Will and his girlfriend Kira as they drive to a dinner party hosted by Will's ex-wife Eden and her new husband David. They're in for an intense night. Not only is the party at the same house where Will lived with Eden, they had a son who died young due to a tragic accident, and Eden met David at a grief support group. They arrive at the party to find several mutual friends that they haven't seen in years, but also a strange man and woman from the grief support group, Sadie and Pruitt. The evening wears on with the predictable awkwardness, but things reach another layer of weird when Eden and David decide to show the group a recruitment video for their grief support group, which is called The Invitation. Most of the guests are uncomfortable with the video and the ensuing discussion of death and grief, but they stick it out good-naturedly, except for Claire who leaves Pruitt follows her out, and Will becomes suspicious. He's been suspicious all night, between the way David locked the door, the bars on the windows, the pills he finds in Eden's room, and the fact that their friend Choi had seemingly showed up to the party early, but nobody had seen him. Will confronts the host with his suspicions, and then Choi walks in. Will is deeply embarrassed and apologizes, but his suspicions are confirmed when he finds an ominous video on Eden's laptop from their cult minister. He tries to intervene with their last drink, but It's too late for Gina, who dies instantly at the table. Chaos ensues with everyone panicking. Pruitt and David hunt down and execute the rest of the party guests. Will survives, along with Kira and Tommy, and they discover that numerous other households in the L.A. area were having a similar evening with the invitation. So it was tough to come up with this synopsis because there are lots of characters. There are lots of twists and turns, and none of them are superfluous. Like, I feel like I skipped over Details, but there's nothing I would cut out of this film. There is no wasted time. There is no wasted space. It all adds to this feeling of weird surreality and awkwardness that, I mean, we've all been in some form or another. Mm -hmm. And I think this film is a
0: great example of artists and filmmakers having creative control. Mm. Uh, When I looked into some of the past work that this team had done, I was a little blown away. So Kusama and the writers Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi had done a film together previously, Aeon Flux, starring Charlize Theron, mm-hmm. based on the MTV cartoon, and it was just a weird actiony sci-fi mess. I- barely remember it.
1: Yeah. It was just her and vinyl and nice to look at.
0: Yeah, and that was the product of, you know, the studio head switching over at the time and massive recuts and all of this strange studio interference that can happen on big budget films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kusama had come out of doing Girl Fight, which was widely lauded um, and kind of got her foot in the door. And then after Aeon Flux, she went quiet for a while uh, until, of course, Jennifer's body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's worked in TV and done a lot of things sense and then the invitation really brought her back to the forefront as one of the leading horror directors of our age. I also just want to shout out, uh, again, Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, the screenwriters of this because, as Andrea says, this is a tight story. Mm -hmm. This is a fully fucking realized story and I would not have expected it looking at their past credits. Not only Aeon Flux, but R.I.P.D., Clash of the Titans, like these big Hollywood messes Yeah. Where I'd be like oh, they could never write a film as delicate, terrifying, surreal, Uh and haunting as this. But uh, hopefully they they got those paychecks and that allowed them to do this. They made this for a million dollars, which is a very small amount to make a film, had creative control, shot it in less than a month, and created something that I think has rippled through our community and continues to. That, you know, we, again, just to say it in our Patreon poll, we had some heavy hitter films. Yeah. And this came out on top of That's it. I right. think that speaks to how
1: special this film is. I'm almost amazed that it was 2015. I know. I'm almost amazed to think that that was six years ago, and it could have been yesterday. It's that good. I mean, this film.
0: I saw it when it came out. I've seen it a few times since, and it's been at least a couple years since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to Andrea, this film hit me differently this time.
1: I would like to hear all about that.
0: So with COVID and being in lockdowns and mm-hmm. not getting to to see people. And certainly in Toronto, where we are, a lot of people are already double vaxxed. We're slowly starting to see people again, but we're all very tentative about it. We're all still being very careful. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same where you are right now, wherever you're listening to this. And um, it really struck me as this moment of Will coming back into this space where he hadn't been for two years mm-hmm. and re-engaging with everyone. And while I've been fortunate enough to stay in contact with all of my close people, seeing them in the flesh is quite different. And also, I feel like COVID, you know, worldwide global pandemic has shown me things about people I didn't know. Mm. Um, You know, people close to me who are now anti-vax to vaccine hesitant and are kind of showing their ass. And you're like, oh, that's who you are. So I think there is this really deep relevancy to this film of, you know, people coming back together after being apart for a long time, after experiencing trauma, after experiencing trauma in different ways, because we've all been through this pandemic together, yet we've all had very different experiences with it. Yes. I know some people who've had it I don't know anyone who's died from it, but I'm sure a lot of you have. Mm -hmm. It's a very different thing to experience something together and have very different experiences of it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this film taps into it. And in watching it, you know, I think this global pandemic, it's, you know, once in a lifetime kind of thing, maybe. But this film just showed that we are all constantly going through something all of the time, Mm -hmm. which I know sounds
1: kind of flaky and weird. But um, no, I felt that too. I felt that like when characters are saying, hey, I've been thinking about you. I didn't reach out, and maybe I should have, but I had my own shit. I think there's going to be a lot of conversations like that in our future. And also, like, hugging people.
0: And it was funny because I was watching I was like, it feels very L.A. Everyone just hugging each other. <laughs> yeah. But but now it's like hugging something is very emotional. Uh-huh. It's to hug someone. I feel like you're hugging them safely. Yeah. If you feel like you can hug anyone at all. That's a big thing. And yeah, I, I think this film still works on the level that I first enjoyed it at. And then it's this level of we've now seen different parts of ourselves. We've seen different parts of our world. Mm-hmm. And we're all just trying to reconcile it all of the time. And there is a quote that um, Ben says, and Ben is the um, friend who's a bit more aloof and funny and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but he says at one point after um, Will notices David locking the front door Mm -hmm. repeatedly, Ben says, can't a man put himself in lockdown if he wants? This is America. Oh, Ben. And I just remember like having to stand up on my couch and just being like, oh, Uh. Ben, if you only knew. (laughs) And then throughout the film, Ben, if he only knew. Oh, yeah. If he only knew what was in store for him, if we only knew the things that were waiting for us on the other
1: side of, like, the next day, the next week, the next month, it would all be different. Well, funny you should say the other side, because Ben didn't make it to see the other side of that dinner party, much less COVID-19. But But he uh, did get slapped and kissed. Yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) And he got to sip that sweet, sweet $8 million bottle of wine. You know, we're going to talk about the
0: notions of dinner parties and cults and all of this stuff. But I want to say off the bat, I would love to think of myself as a Claire in this situation. Okay. Who would just be like, you know what? This is actually too much. I'm going to leave. There's a darker part of me that if someone was plying me with really good red wine, I'd be like, this
1: is fine. I'll just ride this out. Well, it's made me think of like, you know... We were talking just uh, just the other week of, you know, stuff is eventually going to open up. Let's start planning. Let's start dreaming. Where would you love to go? Where would you love to travel to and maybe do a live show or let's just go on a holiday? Like, let's start dreaming again. Let's start thinking about the future as if it's a thing. And let's live for now. And let's drink that bottle of wine that we've been saving for a special occasion. Because I think, you know, COVID-19 really rattled all of our cages that tomorrow is promised to no one. And we've all known that on some kind of level, but we're feeling... That now, Yeah. I think it's like this film does.
0: Life feels much more tactile yeah. now. It's not this ephemeral thing. And, and I can say that as someone with privilege of being able-bodied and I'm not immunocompromised and I'm generally very healthy. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like, I'll die eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it starts to feel, yeah, it's tactile now.
2: Yeah.
1: Hopefully it's on my terms hopefully. You mean and my death will be on your terms? That sounds about right. That's right. right. I'm, at the, I'm your next of kin, right? I pull the plug. You are my
0: beneficiary. Really? You, well, you're 50% of my beneficiary for my insurance money. I'm really allergic to
1: cats, Alex. I hate to break it to you.
0: Well, the cats are going to someone else. Oh, okay. All right.
1: Rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about dinner parties. Yes. Because here I am on the cusp of the big 4-0. And 10 years ago, I don't think I could imagine hosting a dinner party. But now I can cook. And now I realize how nice it is to cook for friends. Um, A really great conversation tends to emerge from that particular setting and circumstance. And that's where these guys are at. Yeah, I've always found dinner parties a little odd. There is something
0: about them that certainly when I was younger in my teens, they felt very adult. Mm. It felt like something to aspire to. And then when I've gone to the occasional, you know, more formal dinner parties. Mm -hmm. They felt kind of awkward. But then there are some that just feel really organic. And so I actually looked up a bit about the history of dinner parties. And I started with a Vox article called Millennials Have Dinner Parties, Just Don't Call Them That by Nisha Chital. Vox, what are we supposed to call them, Nisha? Tell them we're poor and we can't afford to go to restaurants. Oh. So, humans, people, whatever we call us, we have always gathered around food and community. This is nothing new. It dates back to our earliest settlements, our earliest communities and cultures. Um, But the notion of dining rooms as a proper room in a house didn't appear until the early modern period, which is from about 1500 to 1800, meaning like dining rooms, as in they're not like a grand hall, Mm -hmm. but they're a place where people come and they eat. And it's, you know, a set place and time that you would do this. Dinner parties as a th- Thing became more formalized during the Victorian era. This was through introduction of fancy silverware, China, servers helping you put it all together. And I found this um, great article that we'll link to in the um, show notes called The American Dinner Party by Amy Nash. And she writes of putting together a dinner party in the Victorian era. Her whole article is interesting. If you're interested in dinner parties, read this. But I thought this was particularly interesting for our purposes today. She writes, The guests were selected from a group of socially harmonious people who would be comfortable together. The people in attendance of the party were as, if not more, important than the party itself. A party of highly respected guests was a sign of status within society. Mm -hmm. And this carried on for a while until we hit two world wars. Then after World War II, as you get into the fifties in North America, particularly America, um, there was a boom we have talked about and a lot of people, particularly white people, could afford houses and they could have those separate rooms that were dining rooms and they could have china and flatware and silverware and all this stuff and you could host Parties, And it became a status symbol to be able to invite people over and say, you know what, we're going to have this meal and we're going to entertain you and you'll get this promotion off of this dinner party. Mm. You know, we've seen that kind of narrative gist of things mm-hmm. so many times. But after that, we hit recession, we hit culture changes, we hit all kinds of things. And it's not that dinner parties ever stopped, but the formalization of them changed. Yeah. Now it's more so I'll email, text, you know, DM with my friends to invite them over and we'll just hang out. Right now, um, you know, it's not only usually financially a bit more sustainable than going out to a restaurant, but, you know, with double vaccines and making sure the people around you are safe, that's a good thing too. So we are still in this era of it. Um But it's weird when you still get those Formal invitations. And that's what I picked up on very early on in this film. And I actually wrote out what it says on the invitation. Oh, my. uh, Okay. They say. so. Do share. Please join David and Eden for a dinner party at their home at 3908 Crescent Canyon, Hollywood, California, on the evening of July the 11th, 2014, at 7 p.m. We've missed you. Hmm. And then it cuts to Kira saying, it's so thick. Official. Will saying, maybe they're overcompensating. It's kind of hard to call everyone up out of the blue after two years. Mm. So I think this is a really instructive thing that the film does. I don't know if you've ever received a formal invitation to something. The last formal invitation I received was kind of from you, for my bachelorette. Yeah. When you get something in the mail and it's like, show up here at this time, you're yeah. like, better fucking I show been up. Summoned. Someone put the time and effort to get this printed and mm-hmm. put a stamp on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And it's thick, so it's clearly not cheap. You know, all of these things kind of coalesce into a sense of duty. We have to show up. We have to look good. We have to be prepared to interact with people. And even though it's it's kind of different where we expect people in our homes to maintain a certain status of decorum, Mm -hmm. there is an uncontrollable element of it hmm. And that's what I think the invitation does really interestingly is it explores these ideas of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does
1: it in so many different ways, especially when they're literally locked in. It's you're yeah. in our environment, you're going to eat our food and you're going to drink our wine and you're going to trust that all of that is safe.
0: So one of the things that really struck me watching this is this party as they get together, you realize 90 percent of them are all Eden's friends. Mm. We're David's friends. Mm -hmm. Where are his record friends? Where is his coke friends? (laughs) Ah, huh, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. So that was a weird thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get to the end and you think about the totality of what they were
1: doing, why was it all Eden's friends? What happened to David? I feel like it was Eden and Will's friends, yes. right? Like they're friends from that specific moment where they were still married. And mm-hmm. how, I mean, I have a lot of questions. Yes. Good questions. Thoughtful questions. Yeah. But
0: um, it's, you know, interesting if we want to talk a little bit about the the food scene in the film.
1: I remember it, just kind of skips over it, like a passing plates and yeah, wet chicken? Yeah,
0: for a film that's, like, centered on a dinner party, you know, the Amy Nash and uh, Nisha Chetal's piece goes into the various formalities of a dinner party. You get together, you hang out, and then you go and eat. And you can eat for two hours, and there's lots of plates. And then the men and the women separate, and then you come back together. Like, there's a whole, <laughs> yeah. there's a whole running list of how to do it correctly. Okay. Um, so this moment in the film when they all get together and they're eating, it's so fast fascinating because it feels very much like I think how in a modern audience we would feel like a last supper like on a death row kind of way. It's very sumptuous. Uh There's so much food. It is so plentiful. The wine is flowing. The conversation is happening. It is in many ways the ideal of what you would think of in a dinner party. Great food, drink, people talking and laughing Mm -hmm. whereas it keeps intercutting with Will who feels increasingly uncomfortable. It's clearly triggering his PTSD because his PTSD is present from the outset of this in that film. In house, yeah. And it ratchets up the longer he is in that house, yeah. dealing with the death of his son, which he is still grappling with as anyone would. And it feels like this thing that is very tactile because as Kusama kind of cuts between various things and everyone's eating, it goes from fun, it goes to over the top. So the eating noises get louder, the cuts get faster, all of this. So it ratchets up to Will can't actually handle it. And it becomes a sensory overload for Mm -hmm. us as an audience. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that notion of excess in Mm -hmm. this eating and consumption was really interesting.
1: Yes. Well, the affluence is centered on Eden. There's mention that Mm -hmm. David is in the music industry. I'm in, in LA.
0: And Kira says, but Kira says at one point, wow, this is a really nice house. And Will says it's a throwaway. It's
1: all her money. That's her right. It's money. all her family money. Yeah. So so she comes from privilege. There's definitely some um, class differential in there. And indeed, for the longest time, if I had people over to eat, it's like, well, we're going to eat off our laps in front of the TV. Yeah. Cool. Nobody has dining rooms anymore. No. And easier to eat out. That's the thing about
0: dinner parties. You were showing off that I have the space. And mm-hmm. now, as millennials, mm-hmm. like, I. I'm happy to show up and eat on a couch and on a coffee table – I just want to be with people. So I think now in our generation, it's a much more communal thing. Mm -hmm. And I think if I went to a party like David and Eden were throwing, I'd feel a bit more uptight. Yeah. And like, I have to be
1: on my best behavior. Sure. Um, Even though I I try to be on generally good behavior. No. No, No, you wouldn't. No. I mean, there are so many layers of the awkwardness. You definitely get the sense that Mm. several of the guests were friends with them when they were a couple. Like, that's always (sighs) weird to begin with. So weird. They're with new partners everybody's there there's a horrible tragedy that you know maybe they saw each other all at the funeral maybe that was the last time they saw each other so it, there's awkwardness on so so many different levels and I think that awkwardness serves a very specific purpose but it is palpable and it is filmed so beautifully you feel it
0: yeah so just to summarize dinner parties I, I had a thought about another great dinner party in cultural recent history and that
1: is the office episode thank you you. That is the best episode of television I've ever seen in my life. I will return to that episode anytime. Please go on.
0: It's a great episode. It is a perfect 20-odd minutes of TV. Oh, my God. Here's my question for you, Andrea. Tell me. Which party do you go to, Jan and Michaels or David and Eden's?
1: Oh. I mean, Jan and Michaels.
0: Wow. She took me by, by the hand. hand, made me a man. That, that one night. One
1: night. She made everything all right? She made everything all right. Ooh. I mean, I don't think I could fight off Pruitt or Sadie. They're pretty nasty characters.
0: See, I would pick David and Eden because, at least at the end of the night, most people are dead and you don't have to see them again.
1: <laughs> you might be
0: among them. Yeah. Better that than having to face Jan again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would have supported her candle empire. <laughs> Damn it, you got You'd me. have gotten that MLM. <laughs> Love that you brought that up, but yeah, I, the the way you, I hadn't thought about it at all. It is a weird kind of cultural artifact, an echo of a showy, splashy time. I feel like, like even in biblical, you brought up the Last Supper, but breaking bread with someone mm-hmm. is a, is an intimate thing. Like it denotes trust, it denotes sharing of wealth. If you could afford to be able to feed someone else, but that carries forward. Yeah,
0: and I think then there's like the kind of back and forth of then you should come over to my house, and I should come over to yours. Yeah. And, I mean, no one going over to anyone's house after this party, but um, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I love dinner parties in that, you know, so often our gatherings are centered around a something, you know, it'll be a movie or let's play a game or let's do a this or let's do a that. You never get to talk quite Mm -hmm. as much as you do through a dinner party.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a few very close friends and any one of you guys I would happily go over for a dinner party, but it's always worrying to me the other people who will be there. I know.
1: And I'm just like, oh, my God, I hate that. mm mm-hmm. so, And that's happened. Like, The Office is just one example of, like, really awkward dinner parties gone yeah. wrong that I've seen in cinema and that I've experienced in my life. Yeah. But this is the worst dinner party. Like, this is the dinner party from hell. Well, let's throw on this fucking recruitment video. <laughs> of course. I was putting myself in that position, and I'd be like, I find this fascinating. Let's see this. Let's check this out. And I feel like that was everybody's attitude. Like, let's humor them a little bit. We can always walk away.
0: Not in this house. No. And again, at this point, we've kind of seen the door starting to be locked and locked behind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who locks my door behind me or if I have a guest over, I lock it behind them. Sure. There's nothing weird about it unless it's like Mr. Former Coke App Music Producer, <laughs> who I do not trust. No. Is it time to talk cults? It's always time to talk cults.
1: <laughs> I love cult
0: movies. Andrea. I have a really great solution for every problem you've ever had. Do you?
1: Yeah. Is it in this wine that I'm drinking? It is. And some random guy I know. Okay. Great answers to lots of stupid problems. Fantastic. That's what I need. People need answers. And, uh, you know, it's a problem and it's a thing. And it's a thing that we're dealing with in a way under COVID, but it's a thing humanity has grappled with for a long time. When it comes to cults, the first place I wanted to go for my research was was TV, of course, because for a while, for Roomorg TV, we were having this series of uh, expert guest reviewers. Do you remember that? Yes. And so we had a practicing witch come in and comment about Suspiria, and we had a practicing fucking whatever come in to comment about fucking whatever. It didn't last very long because it got stupid. And how it got stupid was this particular episode where we had uh, an expert on cults come in to talk about the lodge. Oh. Do you remember The Lodge? The, I do, yeah. Uh, the I really like that movie. I really like that, too. Yeah. I will link... This Room TV episode in the show notes, just because my hair looks really awesome in the intro, (laughs) and I want it to be that long again, and I'm working on it. But basically, we had a gentleman by the name of Mark Giles as a guest, and he was the media advisor of the International Cultic Studies Association. Terrific. And he's here to talk about The Lodge, which hadn't come out yet. So I had seen an advanced screener, he had seen an advanced screener, and Heather Buckley was staying with me for TIFF, so she happened to be there too and she had seen it at a film festival prior. And so this guy, Mark Giles, he's the PR guy. He's the mouthpiece for this organization that studies cults and provides resources to those trying to get out of them. And he grew up under Mormonism, and he left in 2001. And I thought it was really interesting, first of all, like, you know, we asked him to introduce himself and describe the line of work you're in. The International Cultic Studies Association has the word cultic in the name of the organization, but in the episode, he uses the term high-control, high-demand organizations. He never used the term cult, Hmm. and he wouldn't. He would use it as an adjective. Something was cultic, something was cult-ish if it exhibited certain traits, but it wasn't a label that he ever wanted to put on anything, which I found really interesting, and then I did more research, and I realized that, you know, cults are technically illegal, but you have to—in order to prove the wrong— Doing under the amendment of uh, freedom of religious expression is really, really difficult. So that word is is a heavy word. So high control, high demand organizations is the vernacular that he would use. And I thought that the emphasis on the term control really illuminates the appeal of the cult, which is to say that there's comfort to be had in so much structure and control and Mm -hmm. strong leadership, especially in such troubled times and especially with regard to a subject like grief that we're so powerless over. And I know I've talked in this uh, podcast before about good old Emile Durkheim. Oh, yes. Emile Durkheim was a French sociologist, and uh, he was a structural functionalist. So his approach was that if something exists in society and persists in society, it's because it's meeting a need. So even if it seems to be vapid and stupid and you don't understand it, the fact that it's there and people care about it is just a mirror that maybe we don't want to look in, but maybe Maybe we should. And so, you know, he didn't write about cults, but he wrote about suicide. Mm-hmm. And he wrote about how suicide is a function of uh, something that he turned anomie, A-N-O-M-I-E. And anomie was a term that he coined for normlessness, feeling disconnected from the rest of society or alienated from its rules. And so cults can offer a set of easily understandable norms and a community that follows rules that are really laid out. It's not like in real life where it's like, Oh, uh, mm, I eat meat. You don't eat meat. Um, I wear leather, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you drink. Like- I'm vaxxed. You're not. Oh, you know Actually, that's a really great example because it's one of those things that, you know, the government is just kind of like, hey, you do you. And so we have to draw these lines for ourselves and determine who it is we're comfortable, you know, exchanging company with and being around. And uh, those norms are defined culturally. They're being negotiated all the time. They change historically. And so I really felt like in the invitation, particularly when they're playing that game I want I have a lot to say about that game. Okay. Well, I invite you to. um, I just feel like, you know, it's appeal to invite everyone to live without ambitions and to ignore those boundaries and then to see how awkward that is. You know, those boundaries are there for a reason. Can I just chat one second about something
0: I found very funny that I've been ruminating on about the anti-vax movement? Please. Um, So years ago, well, at least four years ago, a friend of mine who is, I would say, fancier
1: than I am. Okay, some more affluent and yes. displays it flashier. Yeah.
0: She had a baby shower and mm-hmm. it was at this really cute chichi Frenchy place in downtown Toronto and I went to it. We weren't like super close. I really like her though. I was just flattered to have been invited and mm-hmm. it was very sweet. So I went and the way I sat down was next to uh, this socialite and once I heard her name and she introduced herself I was like oh you're that Toronto socialite one of the few we have and <laughs> And um, I was like, oh, okay. And she was talking, and I remembered in the back of my head, and I double checked it with another friend that this woman sitting next to me was anti-vax. I was just like, ooh. So there were all these beautiful pastries in front of us, and I was, I was like, fucking eating everything I could. And <laughs> she uh, had a little bit of a croissant, and she went to the the server who was passing by, like, uh, excuse me, is this an almond croissant because it is encrusted with almonds? Mm-hmm. And the waiter was like, yes, it is. And she was like, oh, I'm allergic. Oh. And she was like, I can feel my throat swelling Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And someone from a purse produced some, like, Benadryl or something and just handed it to her. And she took it. Uh And I was like, you don't know what the fuck that was. You don't know, but it saved your life. And she stayed there.
1: Had a full fucking meal. As someone with a tree nut allergy, that is just baked goods you look and when you don't see you ask and then you eat yeah but i'm not a socialite i'm just a poor schmuck with a two years expired epi <laughs> <laughs> you have to get it updated you're expensive okay
0: well, just avoid nuts. please join our patreon so andrea can get a new <laughs> epi pen <laughs> okay call don't pity me i hope you say that as i Stab you with an expired (laughs) EpiPen. Jesus Christ. I don't know where it is. God damn it. Don't tell me that. Okay. Cults. Uh, Thank you for all sticking with me during my little derivation right there. Cults. Um, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. I took a class in my undergrad called Cults and New Religions, Mm -hmm. where we explored a lot of different facets of cults. And I've re-upped on all of it for this episode. And just to kind of jump off of your point, Andrea, about the term cult being loaded, Mm -hmm. it absolutely is. Hence, they like to be referred to as, quote unquote, new religions. Yeah. And uh, the sense I got from our prof was that she incorporated the term new religion because she wanted us to have access to these cults and so she was like oh you're these are my students and they're part of a class called cults and new religions you're the new religion you're not one of those crazy cults Uh and we're at the Raelians who believe in like lizard people and sex stuff Uh and i was like miracle. a lot of strange experiences through that course i think i'm glad i took it it was very weird however i think one of the other important things about the invitation is its setting Mm-hmm. Set in California, Los Angeles. It is not a new territory for cults, from Nexium to Scientology to uh, Manson. I always think of Manson. Manson right away. Yeah. Uh, um, to fucking, I don't know, soul cycle, um, to all kinds of things. There is something about it that draws people to it, and I actually found a great Vanity Fair article we will link to in the show notes, as always, called, What Is It About Californian Cults? <laughs> by Jane Borden. So, Borden writes, it's not that Southern Californians are more susceptible to cults. It's that cults want what Southern Californians have, namely, rich people with social capital. Historically, if you wanted rich people to buy your product, if you wanted into a higher echelon of people, you went to Southern California. This goes back to the gold rush, Hollywood, the filmmaking industry, all of that. It's all there. And Borden talks to Professor Marion Goldman of the University of Oregon, who talks about the sense that the West Coast is very much, quote unquote, unchurched. So back in the East Coast, that's where a lot of immigrants were coming in. The first settlements were coming in. There is a history there that brings in religions that are established. Out in the West, it is the Wild West Mm. for a reason. You can kind of get away with a lot of stuff. These cults, again, the, the definition of a cult is really, really tricky. And you can't always delineate it to one thing or another. But most often, they include founders or leaders, whatever you want to call them, who want sex and or money, usually both. And to build on that kind of basics, once you get some rich people in, once you get some other people in, you want to go for the celebrities and they bring even more people in. Hence, you get like Scientology with Tom Cruise and John Travolta, uh, Nexium with Allison Mack and various other people. There is a sense that you can draw people in. And I think there is a notion around California that because it is the city of dreams, cults can prey upon people really easily by presenting fronts to things. You know, cults aren't going to tell you, you know what, we worship a weird alien god. It's like, actually, we're going to to help you become a better you. We're going to become your professional development. That's Nixium's front, Mm -hmm. you know? The invitation's front is that it's about grief. Mm -hmm. And who has not experienced grief or trauma? Nobody. So, Andrea, I think you remember a brief period uh, during our time off when I went on vacation. I do remember this holiday. Yes, it was wonderful because you were also on holiday. And um, I went out to the East Coast. I hung out with my friend Chris, and we stayed in a cottage in Nova Scotia, completely remote from everyone. And during this time, I read a book called called cultish, the language of fanaticism by Amanda Montell. And I pulled a few things out of this book that I think apply to this film. Montell writes that language is paramount to cult indoctrination. It makes you feel special, it makes you feel smart, it makes you feel like you're part of a group, like you're in on a great inside joke. Mm-hmm. It's a really easy way to bring people together and keep them feeling safe, secure, and that they're part of something, especially if they haven't felt really connected to people in a while, and that religions at their best give us meaning, purpose, a sense of community, and ritual. Cults utilize these basic needs to prey on people, and that, just as you were kind of alluding to, Andrea, gurus provide an identity template, um, something that we should all, if you're part of this cult, aspire to, a way of being. It is a way to take away the burden of responsibility and of choices. And this is why I find in the scene where um, David and Eden and Pruitt and Sadie are kind of showing this video, Mm -hmm. you kind of see, you see the cult leader, Dr. Joseph, and you see how they all kind of mimic that speech pattern. Mm. They're all talking very calmly. And isn't it nice? And isn't it a good thing? And don't you feel at peace now? It's a very suggestive way of speaking. Mm -hmm. It's not confrontational. It's not open-ended. It is, aren't you feeling like this? Doesn't this feel good? Can you feel her spirit? Mm -hmm. And if you're admiring this person, your instinct is to be like, yes, I feel that spirit, as Mm -hmm. you see in that video. And it's incredibly manipulative. It's very subtle, and it preys on the most basic parts of ourselves. And they're not parts to be ashamed of. They're parts
1: to be aware of. Well, we don't have another template for talking about grief and for talking about death. We don't hear it. We don't see it. We are a death-phobic society. And so... You know, the invitation kind of provided a template to talk about it like this and it's so appealing.
0: Exactly. And and there's a part where David says to Will after kind of Will calls him out about locking the door. Yeah. He says, "You've been acting very suspiciously of our hospitality." Yeah. It's a kind of nag. Mm-hmm. that they're doing of like, we're just being hospitable. We're keeping you safe. There was a break-in mm-hmm, down yeah. the road. This is why we're doing Take it. Drink the wine. Chill the fuck out. Yeah. It's this constant kind of like ease and like removing of reasoning. I got this. Is creepy. Relax, I got this. Yeah. And, and again, I think Kusama and everyone else involved in the making of this film does a great job at just kind of ratcheting up this tension so that all of this hospitality, all of these things we would want in a dinner party suddenly feel unearned mm. and unacceptable. Now, I should mention that new religions aren't uncommon, especially in America, but cults, as you know we want to call them in this episode, got a bad name after the Manson family murders and the Jonestown massacre of nineteen seventy eight mm-hmm. And of course, you know there's allusions to it in the satanic panic, and I think there is part of me that is like, why now? In the invitation, why is tonight the night it ends? Mm. And Montell, in her book uh, Cultish, uh, talks about why cults end, mm-hmm. and she points to Jonestown most notably, especially in violent cults, and that Jonestown is, of course, to do with the People's Temple settlement in Guana called Jonestown. Um, you can, you know, see direct allusions to it in the sacrament. You know, the term "Don't drink the Kool Aid." Yeah, you
1: know, that's all part of what it. One of the scariest movies I've ever seen in, in my entire life is a documentary on Jonestown. John. It's chilling. It is. The
0: entire story is fucking chilling. And the reason this mass suicide happened was because the leader, Jim Jones, was losing followers, about to be dethroned, and about to be found out. Mm-hmm. The feds were on to him. Politicians were on to him. It was all collapsing around him. And rather than just, like, put up his hands and say, you know what? Fuck, is over. It's done. Yes. I made it up. He would rather take everyone with him. Everyone.
1: And murder, too. Yeah. And that's kind of something that I was grappling with in preparing for this episode is that, you know, if people want to join an organization where, I mean, maybe you're getting ripped off, but you're getting something else in return that you need badly. You know, like I was looking at a lot of moral relativism in preparing for this episode. And like, if you believe in euthanasia, then you believe in, you know, like the logical extension is people can choose how to live their lives, even if. You don't agree with it, you know? And I think cults are a weird example of we want to be left alone to do our own thing, but then they murder people. Yeah. <laughs> you can't
0: apply that logic. No, it's it's a really... Dark space to be in, and it 's something we are eternally fascinated with, especially mm-hmm. as a rich western culture mm-hmm. and I think the notion is you know many of us think like i 'd never be susceptible to a cult. The cults don 't again, as I was saying, present themselves as we worship a crazy alien god it 's we help you with understanding who you are That's we right. help you with professional development, we help you. Get rid of your trauma. Yeah. And who doesn't want any one of those things?
1: And there aren't many institutions out there that even dare promise that at this point. Everything is breaking down.
0: So Amanda Montel, I actually wasn't going to mention this in the episode, but I will mention it now. She writes about how religion tends to have less of a hold on richer nations Mm -hmm. Um, Because we have access to groups, social help, all kinds of things, it is on the rise and has been a huge part of American culture because they do not have a social safety net, Mm. because they don't have universal health care, because they don't have social programs, because so many people feel, you know, cast off. Mm -hmm. in that culture and where do you go how do you feel communion how do you feel community Mm -hmm. and sometimes that is your only answer and i think a really telling moment in this film is a really brief moment when it flashes back to eden uh seemingly almost trying to commit suicide Mm -hmm. and she's angry and will is trying to like pull you know the razor out of her hands and then you're just left with this notion of Eden as she's in this white dress and she's talking very calmly and it's all fine. Everything's fine. And you realize, I certainly felt like, oh, it's just that we aren't allowed to feel angry and upset and pissed off at what has happened in the world. Mm. And to lose a child, I can't imagine that. To lose a child to a senseless fucking accident, Mm -hmm. it's
1: unimaginable. And she couldn't find a way to express it. She wasn't allowed to. Well, that was a suicide attempt. Yeah. I mean, that's one way to express it that he wouldn't let her do, but... It's true. There aren't many other outlets and I am very grateful and privileged that I don't have a whole lot of experience with grief. My partner did lose his brother to a freak accident and his mother is involved in some grief counseling stuff that's times is a little bit questionable to me and i think my partner sees it too and he stays away but god if there was something that was healthy and positive that could help him through that it's something i can't touch because i'm not touched by the grief and i feel like when you watch the invitation and you watch that scene
0: where they're telling them where they're telling their group of friends their Mm -hmm. close friends about what this is it's a weird fucking word salad. Mm-hmm. David goes from describing it as a science to an emotion. Mm-hmm. It is bananas. And I think it just speaks to the invitation, like any other cult. The solutions are control mechanisms. They aren't about the kind of long-term effects of everything. Mm-hmm. It is about a control in the moment because when you feel pain, trauma, grief, anything like that, and certainly I've experienced it, you feel moment to moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And here's something that is regimented, that gives you structure, and that feels very appealing. Um, and people who understand. Yeah. The community. And you feel like, okay, if I just follow this pattern, I'll be better. Mm-hmm. But then you get to a pattern where you have a dinner party and you're going to kill all your friends. and ooh.
1: Yeah, I feel like the film posits a really interesting tension between Will and Eden that they're both coping As best they can, but neither of them is doing especially better than the other. Indeed, the way they kind of lash out at each other, especially Will, who's just like, you don't get to not feel this. I almost read that as, uh, for a moment, when I was watching it, I was like, what a selfish. If she's doing okay, even if it means she drinks Kool-Aid and doesn't make it through the night, who the fuck are you to say anything about that? Where The problem is that she's taken the whole party with her. And that's the thing with the invitation. And, And that's the thing with cults. Is that, you know, if you do you and I do me and, you know, nobody's harming one another. That's the thing with anti-vax as well, is that we can't draw these lines between each other because we are such social creatures and mm-hmm. we are so reliant on connections with one another.
0: Yeah, it is a really complicated thing. And I think this last year and a half has put us all in this mind frame. This film was talking about this mind frame years, years ago, early, yeah, um, and it is something really integral to be... Being human is yes we are generally independent creatures we have our own minds we have our own ways of moving through the world but we are often if we find our communities we are reliant on them yeah we want to take people with us. Yeah. It's brutal. We want to share the good things in our life with them. Mm-hmm. Like a dinner party. Like a fucking like cult. Like a mass suicide, <laughs> apparently. I'm pouring more wine. This wine is safe, though, right? Yes. Andrea, mm. do you know what I want? What do you want? I want to go back to the scene where they play the game, I want. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you want to kiss
1: me. Oh. <laughs> I'm disappointed.
0: No, for those few people who insist we have some kind of lesbian love, um, unfortunately, we do not. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just dear, dear friends. But this scene fucking rules. Oh, yeah. You it's know, very I, office-esque, like, in yeah, terms of the cringe. It is working on so many levels. Yeah. Pivoting between characters, narratives, all kinds of stuff. It is a deceptively simple scene. Mm-hmm. And one that I went back and I watched actually a few times today. In my opinion, it's brilliant. So after they show the video, they're like, oh, you guys might be kind of weirded out. So we're just going to play this line want game instead of never, ever,
1: have I ever, yeah. essentially. or like Password or Catan or like normal party <laughs> games. I know. Someone was like, are we going to play charades? And <laughs> I was like, oh, honey, you wish.
0: Sort of. And as David describes it, it's about being honest it's about admitting desire. It's that anything is possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you, Andrea, what do you want right now?
1: Six chicken McNuggets with barbecue sauce. Oof. I
0: want, I wish we had a bit more wine, and I would love our dinner now because I'm kind of hungry. But that's where we're at. This is, <laughs> we're part of the invitation. It's all part of it. I ask you. What a shitty game. We're just like hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I ask you, our dear listener, what do you want right now? What do you want? That sounds great, does it? I don't know. Unless it was weird, then don't do it. Um, Unless it has tree nuts, in which case, thank you. Unless uh, RIP Andrea's expired fucking (laughs) EpiPen. That's another fun thing I get to worry about. Um, So it starts off with, like, Sadie, who's this, like, skinny, very Manson-esque character who kind of appears in the film just talking about how she loves everyone so it's a very disarming tactic yeah it's you know she's seemingly very genuine and then she straight up fucking kisses gina Mm -hmm. on the mouth again another disarming tactic the game then goes to gina who says she wants coke yeah which david almost immediately produces again it's an interesting manipulation tactic because it validates gina's desire and it validates David's ability to Mm. produce—it kind of shows, like if you want it, it can happen. Right, banking on the promise that he set out at the beginning of the game, and then prove it. Um, So Pruitt, who is played by John Carroll Lynch, who we last talked about in our Zodiac episode. Uh The part was written for him, as I understand. Oh, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised. John Carroll Lynch is one of those character actors who, whenever he shows up in something, I was like, oh, I'm in for a time. Uh huh. Always very glad to see him. Always feel like I'm going to be freaked out. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you make of the Pruitt and his wife, Margaret, story?
1: I mean... (sighs) It's complicated because it's one of those things where, you know, it sounded like a horrible accident. And from what I understand of recovery, accountability is so important. And this guy served time, so he paid his debt, and he just wants to be really sincere. And there were parts of his exposition that were really lovely. He expresses his regret and his love for his wife. But it's inappropriate, and it's the appropriateness that just really— like, uh, appropriate and inappropriate is such a tricky word. It's so hard to explain to a child— what is appropriate and inappropriate and it just boils down to what makes the rest of the company uncomfortable
0: absolutely in this scene i just kept thinking because pruitt's talking about what he did to margaret and essentially it's manslaughter yeah if we believe pruitt um and he talks about how he's at peace with it because he knows he's going to see her on the other side mm-hmm. and i just was like what if Margaret doesn't want to fucking see you? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, if someone accidentally kills me, I'm probably not going to want to see them in the afterlife. Oh, that doesn't factor into the invitation fairy tale. But yeah, it's the centering of this very particular version of the self. And it actually reminded me a lot of, um, you know, I'm a big Nick Cave fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a documentary that came out a couple years ago called One More Time with Feeling, which is ultimately about the making of uh, one of his newer albums and the death of of his son mm-hmm. and his son died. Um, he has twins, and one of them died in a very tragic accident. And they talk a lot about it in this film. And he says something that I just felt like it just stays with me, and it resonates with me in the scene. And Cave says something to the effect of, "His death happened to us, but it also happened to him." Ooh. And we often, because we're the ones left on this earthly plane,
2: mm-hmm. we
0: think of ourselves in our tragedy, and our feelings. And I don't know that we always consider what happens to the person who's gone. Mm. You know, it's a very tricky thing. And I just felt in that articulation, there is such a sense of culpability and that there is multiple sides to this. Mm. You know, it's not about one person
1: doing something to someone else. It's about the effects that it has on all these other people.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I often think about that when a celebrity commits suicide. Mm -hmm. I often think about how the response is like oh it's such a shame and it was before his time and it was this and it was that and it was like well it was on their terms. Yeah. Are you upset because you wanted more Chris Cornell music? Are you upset because you wanted to, like Robin Mrs. Williams Delfara to make you leave? Yeah. yeah. Yeah exactly. Uh, that person decided it was time to go and uh, they went quietly without your leave and that's fine. Yeah and it's a very
0: complicated thing and I feel like Pruitt in doing this and again it's one of the brilliant things of this film is it's kind of glossing over all of these things, but this film trusts the audience to understand everything that's bubbling underneath. Mm-hmm. And I love this about this film. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Eden breaks the tension by kissing Ben, mm-hmm. which is
1: weird because previously in the film, she has slapped him. She slapped him already, and there was also mention of them being business partners, which yeah. is always like an interesting uh, friend versus co-worker relationship and yeah it took them all by surprise and yeah. you feel rude refusing something like that but it's awkward because it's inappropriate yeah and i think this is where you start to see the real if you haven't already but you
0: start to feel the real fraction in this party between eden david pruitt and sadie and everyone else yeah and these this foursome is upholding these tenets. Of, like, why are you so bothered by this? Yeah. It's fine. We're forgiving ourselves. They're running the show. They're controlling the environment. In so many ways. And then when Claire tries to leave, that is chilling mm-hmm. because she is trying to take autonomy. She's trying to get out of this situation in which she feels uncomfortable after a person has admitted to fucking manslaughter after drinking. Mm-hmm. And there is this kind of, like, don't leave, don't leave. And, you know, let's all be will and mm-hmm. encourage people mm-hmm. to leave when they don't feel comfortable. Comfortable. Mm-hmm. but i think this feels like this huge manipulation and that's what the scene is meant to do and it does it so expertly it's showing the manipulation of this cult because claire is the only one to leave and it's hard for her to leave mm-hmm. and even then we don't know what happens to her after pruitt goes to her car
1: yeah uh- I read somewhere that there was a scene deleted where we see her body in the in, in the bushes, but it was deleted because it took away from the reveal of the actual uh, invitation's intentions.
0: I, I totally agree with that edit. Me too. I think it's better to leave it unsure. Yep. Um, and I think it speaks so much to our kind of socialization that everyone else stays because we're too polite to leave or because the wine is too good and because we don't want to
1: be awkward. Well, And we want to be tolerant as yeah. well, just to be like, okay, you do you. I'm I'm going to do me, and we can still be friends. You're suffering. I respect that. I'm going to stand by you and still be friends. Yeah. People don't consider their own boundaries in this situation. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about privilege always. Yes, please. <laughs> I feel like COVID-19 has been, you know, it's been a real time for privilege because in addition to, you know, the fact that this disease is disproportionately affecting certain people uh, in spite of the fact that issues regarding our treatment of indigenous people it has come to the forefront in the past couple of years. Black Lives Matter has exploded in the past couple of years. The term privilege is less of a four-letter word and people are understanding what it is, hopefully, mm-hmm. and hopefully Um, you know incorporating that into their understanding of their reality and where they come from I visited home on holiday when we were on our sabbatical and I visited my parents for the first time in maybe two years and my dad went off on this rant about Keynesian economics and he (laughs) fucking loves Keynesian economics so hard, Alex. Like, he believes in it. He believes in the freedom of the market like as a great leveler. So hard, it's almost religious. I Like, the way he talks about economics is I feel like it's the way I talk about sociology and mm-hmm. it fucks me up. Anyway, I ran into some research by some economists about the subject of privilege and despair oh. and I thought it was so interesting as regards this episode. So, let's talk about despair. There are four types of despair according to these economists there is cognitive despair which occurs on the level of thought pessimism guilt Hopelessness. It's when you start to perceive others as hostile. And so here's where we're kind of seeing will, I'd say. There's emotional despair, which are feelings of sadness, loneliness, apathy. There's behavioral despair, where when you see people behaving uh, in reckless ways, uh, risky acts without consideration of the future. And then there's biological despair, which is like a dysfunction of the hormones and where we get into mental illness as like a physiological thing. And these things lead to what are called diseases. diseases. Diseases of despair, which is to say an overdose, liver disease, and suicide. These are considered by the medical community to be diseases of despair and then deaths of despair. And not to be confused with diseases of poverty. Impoverished populations are unaffected if they believe their situation will improve. So a couple of economists by the name of Anne Case and Angus Deaton, uh, there's an article called The Epidemic of Despair, Will America's Mortality Crisis Spread to the Rest of the World? And uh, that came out in 2020. And it's, a, it's an excerpt from their book, which is called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. And so to me, like these are economists talking about death and suicide and despair, which is to me, not an economic concern. You know what I mean? And so they coined this term deaths of despair in 2015 to describe the fatalities caused by drugs, alcoholic liver disease, or suicide since the mid-90s specifically. And Case and Deaton argue that this is an American Malady, And they're looking at why. And their findings include that for the last three quarters of the 20th century, mortality rates fell in the USA. And then since the late 90s, progress slowed and soon went into reverse. Just started ramping up. And I've got some stat porn for you. In 2017, deaths of despair killed more people than AIDS did at its peak in 1995. And more than the total number of U.S. soldiers who died in Vietnam. (sighs) And think about how society mobilized against the war in Vietnam and how society mobilized against AIDS. But this is a bigger killer. And since the year 2000, the total deaths by despair outnumber the number of U.S. deaths in both world wars. So the stats are simply staggering. Americans are dying from despair. They are giving up. And it's getting worse. And it's not anything as simple or statistical as an economic recession or a war or anything like that. It's a conflation of numerous things. And yeah, like I said, we're so outraged by the body count of war, uh, 9-11, and we're so mobilized to fight against AIDS and fight against terrorism, but we're not taking the death of despair just as seriously. And I thought that was really fascinating. It was really morbid, obviously, but I was like, this is coming out in an economic analysis. Like, what is the economics of this situation? Because these authors like, were very pro-capitalism, and there's a lot of talk in their article. About about the U.S. GDP, the disproportionate amount Americans pay for healthcare, how that drains resources from education and other areas, uh, the opioid crisis and too much OxyContin and all that shit. A-, a bunch of shit went over my head. It doesn't super matter because they eventually get to the good stuff, which is to say that deaths of despair disproportionately affect working class white people particularly men. And working class white men, uh, the conclusions drawn by these economists, and again, they're not sociologists, they're not psychologists. The conclusions that they drew was that working class white men of the current generation aren't doing as well as their parents' generation, which they expected to. They didn't hope to, they expired to, they were promised to, they expected to. And so if unmet expectations create despair, Could you not take it a step further and say that privilege breeds despair? It's not that things are bad. It's the idea that they won't get better that drives people over the edge. And that is why underprivileged communities, communities that are struggling, tend to stay the same in times of crisis because they believe that, I mean, I don't know if it's just because like life continues as bad as it was before, but they don't have that expectation that things should be handed to them. And so they don't give up. And so here's Eden in this palace in her lovely white robes and she has everything at her disposal. If she can throw money at grief, she would, but she still fell victim to this because she just expected her life to be so fucking easy. And I thought that was so tragic and it really, frankly, changed my view of Eden in this film.
0: Yeah. Um. So there were two points in this film that I felt directly contrasted with each other. One is, of course, the I want game, mm-hmm. which we were just talking about, and Eden's final words. <sighs> So the fracas in the house happens, multiple people die, it's all going on, and Eden eventually ultimately commits suicide, shooting herself in the stomach, which, as we all know from Reservoir Dogs, is one of the worst ways to die. That's a slow one. She asks Will to take her outside. Uh, Will and, of course, Kira take her outside. And Eden's final words are, I hope, I hope we, and then she dies. Mm-hmm. And this hit me so fucking hard, and I couldn't explain why. I I probably still can't explain why. But I just thought it was interesting, the contrast between, you know, some two pretty definitive statements. Mm. I want... And I hope, mm. um, and so I, I wound up in this fucking you know rabbit hole of you know looking on Grammarly and all kinds of sites, and I was just like, oh, I don't know what's going on anymore. Um, but essentially, the the stuff I could distill was that in wanting, you're generally hoping for something immediate and specific, and hoping is general and future based. Mm-hmm. Now, I had um, a drink with my dad um, a bit less than a week ago. I was taking him to a movie at TIFF, and we met up for a drink before in a patio, and we were talking, and I asked him some big life question. Mm-hmm. And we were in the midst of this big life conversation, and we are having a glass of wine. And I, I remember I was waiting for an answer from him, and he took a sip of wine. And he said, you know, I think we can live without love. I don't think we can live without hope.
1: Holy shit. Yeah. Your dad just dropped that after a sip of wine on a dinner patio? That
0: was after a few glasses of wine. God damn. And I had been rummaging around in my head about Eden saying, I hope, I hope we. hmm And her death in the throes of this undefined hope. Yeah. Just fucking killed me. Mm -hmm. And I think it ultimately means, in in distinction to this film, and and unfortunately, you know, I cannot cite my father on JSTOR. I can only cite his life experience and my magical thinking around his life experience and how it all came to me. Um, So just trust that he said that because he did. But I think in this film, the invitation fulfills the immediate but it can't sustain it. Mm. And when we experience grief, when we experience loss, um, a couple days ago, I I took my mom to her TIF film and we talked a lot about my godfather who passed away when I was 11. Mm -hmm. And, And I think the truth of it is is that you never stop missing someone. And that's what my mom and I talked about. And I feel like that hope that... Eden alludes to is so palpable because we hope. Our only thing is hope and what happens
1: when you lose that. There's not a lot. It's critical. It's critical to our survival. Connecting with one another is critical to our survival and hope that things will get better is critical to our survival. And that's what all of my research led to in looking into this film. And I think again, like you said, applied to this current context where we are so divided on so many lines, both literally, ideologically, politically, and figuratively. It's a huge struggle to feel like you're part of anything, but it is, it is what we need to foster to be able to survive. Um, can I be a basic white bitch for a moment? Well, we're drinking white wine, so
0: I would like to talk about Joan Didion. Oh. So she is still— Uh, at the time of recording alive. Okay. (laughs) She's quite aged at this point. Um, Who knows what will happen? But she wrote several seminal pieces about the American identity. She's an incredible writer. I know her mainly as an essayist, but she's written a multitude of of things, fiction and nonfiction. Um, I think the thing she's most well known for is um, her essay and then the following book, which encapsulates a lot of essays around it, is called The White Album. And it is about, the American ideal and the death of the American ideal at the end of the 60s into the 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, it's everything from her going to visit the Doors recording their album to uh, visiting some of the Manson family in jail. And this is a quote from the White Album, her essay. Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969, ended at the exact moment when the word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fires through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. And I think that really encapsulates so much of the invitation. Mm -hmm. There is a breaking of all of this tension, all of this anxiety around being together, about being with people, about experiencing trauma. And so many of us, we struggle to articulate trauma. And it's it's all around us. It's everyone has it. We just all have it in different ways. And if you ever want to, like, fucking, if you want to suck the air out of a dinner party, talk about your, like, Sexual assault, your eating disorder, uh, the death of someone close to you, and you can end a conversation because we are not primed in these situations as much as they are communal. We are not primed to deal with these moments. Mm -hmm. We are not primed to experience anything beyond a kind of surface level unless it's a much more intimate thing. Unless you cry on a podcast, (laughs) which can happen apparently.
1: I felt like that was the biggest sting of the end of The Invitation um, is—you know, I didn't mention it in detail in my uh, synopsis because I knew we were going to go into it, but Will catches— David lighting a red lantern outside very solemnly. You know, it has some it has some gravitas for whatever reason. We don't understand at the time. But at the end, after they've taken Eden outside, they are hearing sirens, they are hearing screams, and they are seeing red lanterns dotting the landscape of Upper L.A. And to me, it was just so tragic. And then they join hands, and I had a little shade of Fight Club, a little shade of <laughs> the Pixies. But at the same time, like, that sound— And that visual of the Red Lanterns means—it means so much. It means not only that most of L.A. is suffering, is coping with grief that they can't cope with, is coping with, like, hardship that they haven't been able to connect with to the point where they turn to the invitation.
0: Absolutely. Ultimately, for me, this movie is kind of—it's a personal and communal— journey through grief from the micro to the macro from the outset of this film it's very much like if you watch the camera shots it's very much focused on will it's tight camera shots on will and then it just kind of keeps broadening mm-hmm. and i think it's so poignant at the end of it it's not only is will kind of you know seen as we're seeing through him all the red lanterns around the canyon he's holding kira's hand he reaches out to her and by the end of it the three of them who are still alive um, will tommy and kira They have now all experienced significant trauma, Mm -hmm. and they're all kind of sharing in it. And I thought, you know, when Tommy leaves that scene and he says, I have to go get Miguel, and I was just like – all of the things and all of the feelings. But, um, you know, Will seems so isolated in his pain and his trauma. But as the night wears on, the suffering and the pain touches everyone. There is, are no quick fixes or easy answers. You have to bear it. You have to live with it. And you have to hope it gets better. Yeah, you have no choice.
1: Nothing else to do. Well, I've said my piece on this particular episode. It's a grueling journey, but God, what a beautiful piece of art to tackle such dark subject matter. Yeah. Um. So this was our ninety-ninth episode. I want to announce our next episode. Please do. No, I want you to. No, I want you to. Aww. I hope that you announce it. <laughs> Well, folks, after much uh, deliberation, much back and forth, you know, these are uncertain times and uh, it's largely left to us what it is we're comfortable with, what we feel comfortable doing, and we have decided to proceed to attend Salem Horror Fest as planned. Uh, That decision is predicated on the information that we have right now, our current health levels, how things are looking. I mean... There are no absolutes at this time. Um, there's always a chance that one of us could fail our test at the uh, airport and not go. But the plan is to do our 100th episode at Salem Horror Fest tackling George Romero's The Crazies. Um,
0: Woo! <laughs> I don't know how else to do it. I know. We're I'm just, trying to be excited. We're trying to gloss it up. I'm sorry. After... That was a very, like, we might maybe kind I, of sort of do it. I just don't want to. I know. know. Basically, we're taking every precaution so that we can be there in Salem. Uh, the wonderful people at Salem Horror Fest are keeping us safe and keeping you safe by ensuring that everyone who attends is double vaccinated. Uh, there are limited capacities to attend. So if you are thinking about buying a ticket, if you feel comfortable, if you're into it, uh I know there are a few tickets left. We mm-hmm. just talked to Kay. There are a few tickets left. You can get them. Um and we're all going to be really careful and really supportive of everyone. And of course, if you can't make it, that's no problem because the episode will be available at the end of the month, still our October episode. But there may be some surprises in person. Ooh, like what? I don't know. You'll probably still hear it on, you know, the main and feed episode, but surprises. Yeah, it's it's a tricky time. I am excited to knock wood, go to Salem. Yes. I'm excited to go to Salem with you. I am excited for my COVID test to get there, Uh huh. which will be negative, I think. I haven't had a swab yet. I haven't either. I don't see anyone, like, except you. Ugh. Anyway, point being, we're going to be in Salem. Hopefully, fingers crossed. We're excited. It's our 100th episode. 100
1: fucking episodes! Did you ever think we'd get to 100 episodes? I didn't think we'd get to 10. But I didn't think we'd not get to 10. I just didn't bother thinking about anything.
0: (laughs) See, I feel like Faculty of Horror kind of became like a cult where I just manipulated you into friendship. It's
1: true. Yeah. I hope we're here for another 200.
0: (laughs) Um, we should also mention class of 2021 merch. You guys want some merch? You want some sexy merch? Maybe we get some sexy merch. We got some boobs and some merch. We uh, were so lucky, and we worked with um, the fantastic artist Slutfikit. Yeah. Yep. We will link her in the show notes. She is incredible. Incredible.
1: I'm so glad we got her.
0: Yeah. So we'll link our store in the show notes. We'll also link Slutfikit. Mm-hmm. Again, I think I'm saying it right. In the show notes as well, so you can follow her on
1: Instagram. I mean, my God. Incredible artwork for this year. We have had some amazing artists do our Uh, our limited-run Faculty of Horror merch, and uh, this one is no exception. And this time we have it on notebooks. That's right. I'm so excited. There's a a variety of merch for y'all. I'm literally going to spend all of my money on just buying
0: Faculty (laughs) of Horror notebooks. (laughs) Me too. Going to be far too nerdy for anyone to handle. Okay, so invitation willing— We will be seeing and you will all be hearing us from Salem, Massachusetts. Um, But if not, we've got some fun stuff planned for our 100th episode to talk about George Romero's The Crazies. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the remake. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I mean, Timothy Oliphant. Keep the hope. Always. And until next time,
1: office hours are closed.